everyone and welcome to episode 83 of Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo and this is a podcast about communication skills. So in the last two episodes we talked about mirroring and emotional labeling, two really really simple communication practices that you that you could use to quickly become what I'm calling a reflective practitioner of communication. Uh, and I think what I want to do in this episode is really actually pretty simple. It should be a very a short, straightforward episode. It's to talk about the kind of larger principle behind emotional labeling and mirroring and the transition to reflective practice and why it matters so much um, and how as a kind of you can transition from those very specific things of mirroring and emotional labeling to a more general approach to communication uh, using the insight from the last few episodes. So uh, I think what I've been trying to get at in the last three episodes especially is that so much of communication happens unconsciously or unreflectively because, as I've said so many times in this podcast, because communication isn't about information transmission, it's really about producing effects on others, uh, we have to recognize the extent to which the process of producing effects on others is largely nonverbal, paraverbal, or otherwise um, unconscious, unreflective, and really, really quick. Uh, and part of that realization involves an acknowledgement of the ways in which emotions cause sort of high levels of, uh, uh, or intense levels of effects on others. We can't sort of extirpate emotion from the communicative process. It just doesn't work, which is why the transmission model of communication is just silly. It assumes that emotion can be kind of boxed out of the information transmission process when it just can't. Um, it has too much of a biasing effect on interactions between people. Um, so I've tried to kind of, over the course of lots of episodes in, in this podcast, show that you know we can't do that, and it means that um, our reactions to communicative processes can really bias our reasoning, or shape, or otherwise misshape or contort the kinds of meanings that are produced in an interaction. Um, so, you know, I, I like to talk to my students about meaning, and that meaning is made, not found. So, you know, communicative processes are, um, are this kind of attempt to make meaning through interactivity. But if it's through this kind of, these kinds of interactions between people, emotions or the ways in which emotions condition or distort or uh, influence our, our understanding and our reactions and our responses to, inter to our, our, communi our communicative interactions, will shape the meaning that gets made. Um, okay, so that's an important sort of starting point. What I want to say in this episode is really, really simple, and that's good communicators don't react to what people say 
or what people do. They respond to what people mean. Uh, and that distinction is the distinction that uh, builds, I think, on the last three episodes. And so here's what I mean, especially in relationship to emotional labeling. So if someone's obviously really stressed and anxious and angry, and we react strongly to the intensity of their anxiety and their, uh, their anger, uh, then we have let or allowed the emotion involved in the situation to direct or shape or distort the meaning of the interaction and to guide the kind of meaning-making process. And that meaning-making process now, if it's guided by or distorted by or influenced by the emotion and our reaction to the emotion, then we're missing a whole lot of other stuff that is behind or adjacent to or related to why the anger is there in the first place. And it can have a significantly negative effect on the quality of the communicative interaction. So the attempt to become a reflective practitioner is really an attempt to slow the communicative process down so that we're not just reactive beings. Um, so maybe a simpler example will help in, in this case. Uh, let's say you get an email, you're at work, you get an email from someone you work with and you find the tone really demeaning uh, or insulting and you immediately feel a kind of sense of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, a sort of flushed sense in the, the core of your body where your heart rate goes up a little bit, your blood pressure goes up a little bit and you feel your chest tighten a little bit. Now, that is, that, that's your physiological reaction to the message. You're, you're having a physiological reaction to that message. And guess what? That's no surprise. We all, all always already have physiological responses to communicative practices. That's just sort of par for the course. We can't do anything about it. Um, the question is, for people skilled at communication, the question is whether you will email back and react through communicative practices to the message. Now, obviously, you shouldn't you should wait until your emotional reaction has dissipated. You've given it time. You've labeled emotionally what's going on in the message. You've thought about the meaning behind the tone or adjacent to it. Uh, you've tried to contextualize what's going on with the message, etc. And what you're looking for is not the kind of um, the emotions that immediately call for a reaction in the message, but you're looking for, uh, you're looking to respond to something more significant or larger or beyond that simple initial kind of negativity uh, or that anger that's fueling the message that you're reacting to. Uh, so just like in emotional labeling, I, I said that there was a presenting behavior and then there's the underlying emotion that feeds the presenting behavior. What a good emotional labeler does is label the emotion behind the behavior, not just the behavior. So, and that's the kind of unconscious part. Like those of us who are unconscious communicators, we don't think about this much. Their spouse is angry. They come home angry. They're like, you're always angry all the time. Okay, that's emotional labeling, but it's the of the first order kind of presenting behavior, not of the cause of the presenting behavior. 
you know, you're, it seems like you're angry all the time. Um, and it seems like you feel, uh, like you don't have enough, get enough respect around the house or enough acknowledgement or appreciation around the house for all that you do. Okay. That is responding to the kind of second order emotions that are driving the presenting behavior. Um, so responding, it doesn't, isn't just about emotional labeling though. Responding is, is always about responding to the source of the communicative process or the communicative practice or message and not the, the, the presentation of that message that's most likely to elicit an immediate reaction. So paraverbal, nonverbal, paraverbal and nonverbal uh, communicative practices are often the source of the of our reactivity. So if someone even writes an email in a nasty tone, you sort of forget about the content of the email, focus on the tone, and the tone guides your reaction to the message. Well, this is a problem, right? We, we don't want to be reactive. We want to be responsive to the meaning that's behind that tone or the source of the tone, just like in emotional labeling. We want to get at the underlying state that causes the presenting behavior. Uh, this is true more strategically and um, in a more complex ways beyond emotional labeling. So let's say you're in a big kind of, kind of complicated meeting and someone is advocating for a particular policy, but they're doing it in, in neutral, objective uh, language. There's not really much emotion present in what's going on. Um, but the question for you is still, am I going to react to the content of that policy message? Or am I going to respond to the larger meaning that's underlying it? And can I respond to that meaning, that meaning in a productive and helpful way? Um, good communicators don't react to the first thing that they hear, whether the first thing they hear is tone or, or body language or whatever, or if it's the, the meaning of the message itself. They don't just react to that. They respond to the whole situation, including the underlying contextual forces that are shaping that person's desires or interests or commitments in that moment. Whether those can be reduced to emotion is sort of beside the point. The reason I wanted to talk about this is because what starts as a simple, simple practice of emotional labeling expands out into this kind of general principle of responsiveness. Um, some communication scholars, uh, Martin Buber, a famous uh, Jewish theologian, uh, also talked about our responsibility to respond to the person. Uh, and, and that responsibility to respond to the person is how we entered into what Buber called genuine dialogue with the other person. Why, why would he use responsibility, responsiveness, genuine dialogue, these kinds of terms? He's trying to get us out of the circuit of reactivity. And Buber was writing in, in the middle of the 20th century as a Jewish theologian when his people are being slaughtered and murdered uh, by the Nazis. Um, and there's high degrees of anger and tension and anxiety, etc. And he was looking for a communication theory and communication practice where you, by you could be responsive to a person instead of just reactive to them in circumstances when there was like high degrees of reactivity, people were just emotionally reactive to one another without really thinking through the larger significance of that reaction. Um, so I, I'm not kind of uncovering some new ground here or inventing some new theory or some new kind of theoretical approach to communication 
studies or communication practice. I'm merely kind of trying to summarize or reiterate some of the strands from this podcast with some of the larger kind of theoretical uh, perspectives throughout the 20th century on, on meaning and on our responsibility to the other people we meet in the course of our interpersonal interaction. So I always spend some time talking with my students about whether they feel that they are reactive communicators or responsive communicators. And we try to kind of, I try to get them to sort of outline a distinction between reactive communicators and responsive communicators. And it's it's great working with, you know, 20, 19, 20, 21 year olds uh, because they're at the stage in their life where they need to start making the transition from reactive communicators to responsive ones. I look at my kids who are 13 and 11, and I think they're still mostly reactive communicators. Uh, they react so quickly and so so strongly or so intensely oftentimes to one another, or to me or to someone else. Uh, it's largely because some parts of their brain which would allow them to transition from reactive communicators to responsive ones aren't fully developed yet. Um, and I think it's one of the tasks of higher education, actually, and kind of the process of maturation to transition someone from just being a reactive, animalistic kind of communicator to a responsive one. Uh, and I mean, this is going to be absurd, but if you watch Donald Trump right now is doing uh, doing press conferences every day at 530, uh, to review the issue with the current pandemic in the United States. Uh, Donald Trump is perhaps the signature example of a reactive communicator that I've ever seen. He's incapable of strategic thought. He's incapable of, of responding in any meaningful way to what's going on in an interaction with a reporter. He only intensely reacts to that thing. He'll hear one word and just react strongly in an emotional way to that word without carefully thinking through what the underlying emotional state or what the contextual circumstances for that person advancing that question happened to be. Um, Reactive, so reactive communicators can be um, very difficult to deal with. They can also um, be uh, magnetic is, may, might not be the right word, but the intensity of their reactivity can often kind of get a charge out of us too. And you see this with the reporters asking Trump questions. He, they ask, he reacts strongly and they react back with also uh, frustration or anger, etc. And we just have a communicative circuit that's action, reaction, reaction, reaction without any thoughtful responsiveness whatsoever, just kind of goes out the window. Um, And that's because there's this kind of allure or this kind of animalistic kind of magnetism to reactive thinkers. The more they react more intensely, the more we react without thinking, etc. And that's because it makes us feel this kind of emotional charge. Uh, and that emotional charge is the reaction without the the attending thoughtfulness or reflectiveness that goes with it. Um, but if you're only a reactive thinker, if, if you're just re- reactive uh, and you're not thoughtful or reflective or responsive, then you cannot act strategically and you're never going to be any good at uh, the central tasks of leadership um, or the central tasks of 
sort of building trust and connectedness uh, and intimacy uh, and empathy, like all of those things will go out the window and you, you won't be any, any good at them. Um, I think I'm, I wanted to make this one last transition in this episode to leadership communication. Uh, so we pay attention to uh, reactive communicators, like they, they capture our attention because of the intensity and simplicity and swiftness with which they react to a communicative action in and of itself. Uh, but leadership, good leadership, really is about being responsive to a situation and not reactive. Uh, it's kind of like, like the mastered art of non-reactivity. Uh, and good leadership communication involves suspending our reactivity. And so in the episode when I talked about uncertainty, that was a version of suspending reactivity. In the episode where I talked about reflective practice, that's another example of suspending reactivity. I had a whole episode where I talked about suspending uh, judgment period, how leaders could, could just suspend judgment for a moment. That's another way of talking about suspending reactivity. So in all of these ways, good leaders are able to suspend their initial gut reaction to, to a communicative process. And they are able to replace that with um, a responsiveness that gets at the context, the larger significance, the meaning behind something, the emotional, um, the emotional background that's causing or leading to the the behaviors that one sees in front of one. Um, so, if someone writes a really angry email to their manager or their boss or their leader, and the a good leader doesn't re react to the anger in the message, but thinks about what's behind it, and then responds to the thing that's behind it. Because in responding to the thing that's behind it, you diffuse the anger, um, you make meaningful progress in the interaction, it's, et cetera. Um, I think that that's kind of like a critical transition for all people to make in their development or growth as a communicator. So just like you make the, the transition to being reflective, to reflective practice, so too you make the transition to being responsive instead of reactive. Um, so that's the message for today's episode. Always respond, never react. Uh, responsiveness puts you in that place of reflective practice. Reactivity puts you in a place where emotions can distort or bias or unfairly influence the meaning of, uh, of a communicative interaction. All right, so that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back shortly with a couple of new episodes.